Hey there, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Maddie Murray, and this is Professionally Informal. Welcome. So like I said, my name is Maddie and this is a new podcast. And before uh, we get into it, I wanted to explain a bit about the title of the show, Professionally Informal. And it'll also try to give you a feeling of what this is going to be. So I have a job that's not podcasting, obviously, if you can tell anything from the, uh, you know, general way this has been going so far. (laughs) Um, And that is I'm a naturalist, which can mean a lot of different things, but the biggest component right now for me in my job and in my life is that I am a professional informal educator, which is something that I really, really enjoy saying because the words professional and informal following each other and both referring you know, to the same word, both describing the same noun is uh, kind of funny. It's kind of funky and it sort of makes you do a bit of a double take when you hear it. So being an informal educator means that I teach a lot, but I don't teach in classrooms. I don't necessarily always have curriculums and lesson plans. Uh, I certainly don't have textbooks. I usually don't have any sort of worksheet or grading or requirement. Instead, I teach people, kids, adults, uh, elderly folks. I teach them in really different ways. And that can look like a lot of things. It can mean leading classes or workshops on a certain topic, usually related to nature or natural history. It can mean taking out an animal and showing kids, hey, this is Kevin. Kevin's a snake. Let's talk about snakes and why they're important and why they're not bad or scary or yucky. It can be something as easy as walking down a trail and having a visitor stop me and ask me a question and then me trying to give them the most well-informed answer that I can. I didn't go to school to be a teacher. I don't have, you know, a teaching certificate or anything. But what I do have is eight years of experience teaching people in unlikely places and teaching them things that they are expressly interested in and things that they might not necessarily have a chance to learn, you know, at school or on their own. And I love what I do. There's something really incredible about connecting with a guest or a visitor and sharing with them could be like a neat conservation fact or something about an animal's behavior or the life history facts of a tree. And every so often, maybe once in every 50 people or even, you know, 100 or 200, depending on the day, something sparks inside them. And then all of a sudden, you can tell that they want to know more. And even if they can't stay and chat that long, you know that they're going to be thinking about what they learned, what you told them for a while, maybe even the rest of their lives. Being an informal educator is connecting with people in a way that's, you know, relevant to them. It's communicating science, taking things that are in, you know, large, bulky, poorly written academic papers 
and making it translatable so that I can tell someone what exactly the results of this study were without them having to know what, you know, gene HPC29 alters in a mouse brain. I don't know if that's an actual gene. I made that up. It's been like a year since I've been in biopsychology. That was the last time I was like, you know, regularly reading those papers. So that might just be nothing. I was worried when I started making up that gene that it sounded too much uh, like a printer because it started with HP, but I ran with it because that is how you do it. Yep. <laughs> so it also means, clearly as you can tell, I'm a great improviser, but it means you have to also be able to think on your toes and perform. Informal education could be something one-on-one, -on -one, like showing someone a specimen, like, hey kid, you wanna see my skull? Even though that's not really the, uh, that's not the best way to, to do it. There's uh, much better ways to, to get a kid's attention and to, you know, teach them. Or it can be talking on microphone, giving a scripted or unscripted narration to an audience full of people at, say, a dolphin show. There are so many ways it can happen. And chances are, if you've ever been to your local zoo or natural history museum, or sometimes even, you know, like art museum, chances are you've probably talked to an informal educator. Another term for informal educators is an interpreter. They're someone who interprets the facts, the information, the history, interpret this whole other field that you might not be proficient in and puts them into your language. Sometimes I'll tell people, oh yeah, you know, I'm like an interpreter. And they're like, like a sign language interpreter? Like a, like a French to English interpreter? And I'm like, no. Kind of, because, but no, but kind of, yeah, because you know what? Science really can be its own language. And if you're not someone who is in the sciences and has studied it for an extended period of time, then it can be really intimidating and confusing. And there's nothing wrong with not being in the sciences because believe it or not, folks, there's a lot more out there than science and it's really important stuff. But a lot of the stuff that's in science might seem sort of out of reach and closed off if you haven't studied it because there's all sorts of ridiculous terms and words and phrases and abbreviations and jargon and just absolute bullshit for days. And if you want people to know what all that says, well, someone's got to be there to interpret it. And that someone is me. So what this show is going to be about is each week I'll probably be choosing a, uh, a topic relevant to something that I've either been asked by a guest or that has, you know, come up talking with my fellow educators uh, in the most recent week and looking into that more. Uh, sometimes <laughs> when you work in informal education, uh, you meet people who have some ideas and thoughts and opinions that you might think are a little bit uh, off the wall. So maybe sometimes it'll be a response to that. If you want an example, like three weeks ago, a guy came in and he didn't believe in dinosaurs. And he was teaching his child not to believe in dinosaurs. And you know what they were looking at as they were convincing each other that dinosaurs aren't real? 
Well, they thought it was a dinosaur. It was a fucking woolly mammoth. That's not even a dinosaur. That's a mammal. It coexisted with humans. We have archaeological evidence for that. Come on. You're not even trying at that point. So we have interactions like that. <laughs> and, you know, try as hard as you can to keep your cool and teach. Um, and then you go back to the office and share with your friends, especially uh, if that person was completely unconvincible or completely unreasonable in their thought process. Dinosaur guy was in the uh, completely unreasonable side of things. So without further, let's get started. So something that I get questions about quite a bit, it can be a bit of a hot button issue, um, is everyone's uh, favorite neighborhood friend, the coyote. Listen, y'all, people, um, people freak out about coyotes. If you're listening to this and you're someone who's scared about coyotes, you know, that's reasonable. Because that seems to be the general reaction from a lot of people. But uh, sometimes folks just get downright unreasonable about them. Unreasonable how, you may ask. Okay, so there is this app, or as I said before, application, that you may be familiar with. It's, um, it's called Nextdoor. Pretty sure it's all spelled as one word. Nextdoor is a neighborhood communication app where... You sign up, you log your neighborhood, and then you can post things and share them with other people in your neighborhood and the adjoining neighborhoods. Um, people use it to, you know, share information. Like, I think there are, I think there are packages being stolen, or I saw this group of hoodlums out on the street at sundown the other day. It's like, sir, I think you're just old and racist. A lot of things like that. But then also some really some really cool things like, hey guys, I saw like these really pretty flower blooms or shout out to the people at this house for having awesome native gardens. So it's a uh, it's a blessing and a curse. Definitely a blessing and a curse. A lot of times uh, for me in my life, it leans more to towards uh, towards a curse because we get stuff on it. Um, on it, you know, sort of like, like this. Coyote sighting. Dear neighbors, I have just been informed of a coyote sighting. Dear neighbors, I have just been informed of a coyote sighting this morning at 11 a.m. on the insert block and street name here. Husband said it looked healthy, so please, if you let your pets out, be on the lookout. It cut through the neighbor's backyard and headed over to Sterling. Or, um, this one, uh, an urgent alert which sends a special notification to everyone in the neighborhood's phones. Urgent alert. Just saw a medium-large coyote in our yard, which we scared off. It ran north slash northeast. We are at insert names of roads here, in the northern part of, insert my town name here, reported the sighting to the village. Coyotes. Heard a pack of coyotes attack what I'm hoping was not a dog on 38th. Alert. Spotted a pack of coyotes Saturday morning. Around 7 a.m. we saw three to four healthy and 50 to 60 pound coyotes in our back wooded yard. Please. Keep an eye out for your pets. And y'all, there are so many here, I could just keep on going. Pretty much all, like, 
Holy shit, balls! It's a coyote! Which is why I'm here today to talk about coyotes. Because frankly, folks, I've had enough. The scientific name of coyotes is Canis latrans, which I may be pronouncing completely wrong because I am really bad at scientific names. Like, so horribly bad that I have to, like, write them down phonetically and then also listen to it, like, 20 times before I actually say it in front of people if I'm not saying it regularly. And I forgot to listen to how this one is pronounced before I started recording. But oops, I guess it's too late now. So that's what you get. Can you tell I'm new here? So coyotes. Coyotes are canines native to North America, and they are most closely related to the domestic dog and the gray wolf. Um, however, they are they are canids, so that means they're also closely related to jackals, fox. Uh, I want to say fox is really bad, but I'm pretty sure it's just fox. African painted dogs and uh, other wolf species. So canids, you know, that encapsulates pretty much all those, you know, dog-like animals. But not seals. Seals, they, they may be like big water dogs, but they're not related. I love a seal. They're great. Okay, so the coyote is the most widely distributed large predator in North America, which is really, that's a big deal, y'all. Because here's the thing, the coyote's home range covers the entirety of North America. And a lot of times they're living in places where the other large predators have been wiped out. Uh, I personally live in Illinois where coyotes are the only large predator left. We don't have any more wolves here. We don't have bears or cougars or mountain lions. Um, and that's the case for a lot of places, which is really unfortunate. Because having a predator in place, uh, having large predators in place helps control all the other populations and helps keep the entire ecosystem functioning normally. So we do at least have coyotes. We don't have a lot of those large predators left in a lot of places, though, anymore, which is really unfortunate. But that's not what this is about. This is about coyotes. So the average male coyote weighs about 18 to 44 pounds on average, and the females about 15 to 40 pounds. They are carnivorous, but um, they are opportunistic feeders. So while they prefer to eat meat, which might be like deer, rabbit, skunk, uh, sometimes a mole or a vole or even reptiles, um, pretty much anything meat that they can grab, uh, they will also, you know, they will eat berries or plants if they are hungry and if it's available. They're also carrion eaters, so carrion is dead meat, dead decaying meat, so they will scavenge off of um, other carcasses that have either been road killed or if you're in a place that has other larger predators such as Yellowstone, um, a bison that was killed by wolves. Coyotes will come in and pick those bones clean when they have a chance. The average home range of a coyote is about 2 to 10 square miles, um, but their home ranges are not exclusive, so several coyotes could live in the same area. Although they do have their territories that they choose to defend, there is usually some degree of overlap, um, especially with single coyotes, and usually that doesn't lead to too much trouble from what we've seen but we just still uh, don't know a lot about the secret lives of coyotes. 
coyotes get around. Um, they can run up to 43 miles an hour for short distances, but most of the time they just go along at a nice normal walk trot like a dog. Um, and they prefer uh, areas like that have semi-open country, so like borders on farmlands, um, and as well as ridges and old trails, uh, which is smart because that's a lot less brush to push through. So if you ever you know, hear about a coyote that was walking right down the path like it wasn't afraid at all. Folks, that's just how they like to travel. Wouldn't you rather walk down the path than, I don't know, through the, you know, honeysuckle and buckthorn that's growing like wild off the side? I know I would. And they're most active from dusk uh, until the early morning hours, but they can be seen at other times of day, especially depending on what type of environment they live in. And I'm gonna talk more about that in a little bit because that's where it actually starts to get really interesting when we get into coyotes in different places. And also they're excellent swimmers, which is- On a lot of the uh, research that I was doing, um, I was reading through the descriptions of coyotes and I wanted to give one, you know, in case you don't know what it looks like. And a lot of uh, what I saw compared them to either a German shepherd, like a small German shepherd. So they've got, you know, pointy ears, a slightly sloping back, uh, big, long, puffy tail, or a small collie dog. So I also wanted to talk about coyote pups. Um, they're adorable. They're scrappy. I would love to pet them all behind the ears. Um, that's a bad idea. Just leave animals and their babies be, please. But they're great. Um, so coyotes are born in usually in dens, hollow trees, under certain ledges. And when they're born, they weigh only about 200 to 500 grams, which if you can't, you know, automatically convert that to pounds in your brain, um, I certainly can't. Uh, that's not a lot. It means uh, less than half a pound to 1.1 pounds at birth. They're tiny. They're babies. They're so small. <laughs> So peak breeding um, occurs in late February to early March, and like uh, like other dogs, like pretty much all other dogs, they are uh, born with their eyes closed and their eyes open between 8 and 14 days old. At that point, um, a little bit after that, they'll start eating solid food, getting a bit more independence, but while they're, you know, still little, they're still pretty helpless, and so both the male and female uh, parent will hunt and bring food to the young. And others, adults that are associated with this denning pair may also help with the hunting and caring for the young, which is really cool. They do have that sort of pack behavior that uh, we are often familiar with with wolves. Uh, not necessarily to as big an ex uh, extent where, you know, we have really large wolf packs, but um, they do oftentimes live in small hunting uh, familial groups. So I alluded to earlier that uh, sometimes coyotes can behave differently depending on where they live. And so this is what I was really excited to get into today. And that is urban coyotes. So urban coyotes. Coyotes that live in cities. Fancy uptown girl coyotes, you know. But not just coyotes in cities, coyotes that are, you know, living in more heavily populated areas such as, well, cities, downtown, metropolitan areas, um, as well as, you know, densely, pop densely populated suburbs, like where I live. So uh, urban coyotes are different because they regularly come into contact with people and domestic pets in the sense that they're aware of us and where we've been. So even if we're not seeing them, they know we're there, and they're seeing us very often. 
Now, that doesn't mean that, oh my gosh, I'm outside at night. There's a coyote watching me that I can't see. No. But they know we're there, and they see us, and they smell our trash that we put out, and they smell the scents that our dog leaves when it goes to the bathroom somewhere, and they may be familiar with our traffic patterns. They're used to people. It doesn't mean they necessarily like people or they want to be around people, but it's something that they're more acclimated to. So urban coyotes tend to be, like, really secretive. Their dens are incredibly hard to find. Uh, a lot of times they're hidden in urban green spaces. Uh, so, for example, I am from the Chicago area, and we have a lot of big parks in the city. And so the coyote, their dens may be hidden in those green spaces, uh, but they're still incredibly difficult to find. These are really sneaky animals. And because they are used to living in a busy urban environment, they have adjusted their schedule and their sleep patterns to be, you know, most uh, available, most visible at different times of the day and night. So urban coyotes, they'll mostly come out at night after dark when most of the people are off the streets, which makes it that much harder to find them. But uh, how, how do we know all this if we can't find them? And so I want to tell you about one of the coolest research projects um, ever, I think. And it is called the Urban Coyote Research Project, which is also known as the Cook County Coyote Project. So this is a study of the coyotes in the Chicago metropolitan area. Uh, it's an ongoing project. It started in about the year 2000s to uh, assess and look at the shortcomings in urban coyote ecology and population management. Uh, because we knew that they were there, we knew coyotes were there, we'd seen them every so often, but we didn't know anything about how how they lived. How was it different or similar to, you know, tra traditional coyote studies uh, where coyotes are living on um, places where there are, you know, wide open swaths of farmland or a protected sort of forest system. So we wanted to figure out how they adapted to living in a literal city because, guys, that's wild. You don't see a lot of large animals in the city because it's not not the easiest place for an animal to live. So how did we how do we do this? I'm going to say right now um, as someone who has a background in animal behavior, that animal behavior research can be hard. It can be really hard. You're staking your career on the idea that an animal will or will not behave a certain way, and then you have to try to figure out how to measure that. Um, and you can't, you know, you can't give them a survey and be like, hello, Mr. Coyote, uh, on a scale of one to 10, how would you, how are you feeling today with the current noise level here in the city? How, uh, how is that impacting you? You can't do that. I wish you could, it would make the field a lot easier. Um, but, but you can't. So as part of the Urban Coyote Research Project, coyotes are live captured and then tagged or radio collared. So essentially coyotes are captured alive and sedated safely and humanely. Um, and then they are either given a identification tag or a radio collar. So to date, the um, Urban Coyote Research Project has tagged over 1,000 coyotes and radio collared about 440, which is insane. That's a lot of animals all here in the Chicagoland area. 
Um, and because they get sedated for this, uh, for this research, for the tagging and the collaring, they are able to collect uh, different biometric data points, like you know the weight, the estimated age. Uh, they can collect blood so that they can look at the uh, other health levels, possibly even like parasite loads or if that coyote is sick, um, as well as you know start to put together a genome sequence for this species. They are then taken and re-released to the same location where they are captured, uh, which is really important because these are territorial animals, and then they are tracked. So tagged coyotes um, are tracked. It's a bit tougher to track them because uh, they simply just have an identifying number on them. And if, you know, someone sees that coyote, they record it and uh, say, how did it look? This is where we last saw it. This is what it looked like it was doing. Collared coyotes, though, uh, that's that's a whole different story. So a coyote that's tagged with a radio collar can have its precise location monitored and tracked uh, throughout the night. So essentially, people will researchers will go out there with um, large radio telemetry devices and sort of ping signals off of the collar of this animal so that it can triangulate its exact location. And that is really, really cool because it's letting us know where exactly these animals are traveling, uh, what sort of routes are they taking, what time do they start their travel, and uh, how, how often do they return to the same place? Are they staying in the same place? We don't know. Uh, I mean, usually if it's an adult female, yeah, it'll stay around in the same area. But if it is, you know, a young male, maybe about a year and a half to two years old, they're about to be going off on their own. Where are they going? Especially in an area that seems to already have so many coyotes. We want to know where they're going and what they have to do to get their own territory and to, you know, grow up and reproduce on their own. And so this study has found a lot of really, really cool things. Um, one of the most interesting is that, uh, you know, as the top predator in this ecosystem, these guys are key to maintaining the balance of the food web here in Chicago, in the Chicagoland area. They are helping to control the rodent, uh, deer, and Canada goose populations, which is really important uh, because rodents... Um, can carry different diseases. They're often considered a pest animal. A lot of people don't want them around. So it's good in that sense that there's fewer of them around. Uh, the deer population is out of control in a lot of areas because there are not large predators. And so having some sort of control over the deer population means that the forest can be healthier because young trees are not getting as viciously eaten by deer. Um, now, I love deer. Most people do. They're really pretty. They're super cool. But uh, they can really, really harm a forest ecosystem if there's too many of them. Because the ecosystem cannot produce enough trees. The trees cannot make enough leaves or bark to fully sustain all of them. And then they just wind up stripping these native trees, which then die and are far too often replaced with invasive species that we don't want around that can cause more harm to the system. Sorry about that rabbit hole. I, I'm just really passionate about deer population control, which is a whole other uh, little can of worms that I can open and lie in on a different day. <laughs> but uh, I've also found that the coyotes appear to be uh, monogamous. They tend to mate for life, one male and one female. 
which is really cool because monogamy usually in the animal kingdom means that there's some sort of benefit to choosing the mate and having the solid mate. Um, it means that the young are most likely being reared by two parents, which is awesome. Um, and it also means it can be easier to track family lineages of coyotes across time, which is awesome, especially because uh, coyotes in the wild do tend to only live three to four years. Now, they can live up to 13 to 15 years in captivity, uh, but in the wild, it's not uncommon. In fact, it's most normal for them to uh, be killed by the time they are about four years old. Usually, uh, they are hit by some uh, sort of automobile uh, collision. So we've also found, uh, and I alluded to this earlier, that coyotes in urban environments switch their activity patterns to be more active at night when human activity is minimal. Part of the reason why we're not seeing them is because they know in the dead of night, although there might be some people out, I mean, it's a city, there's always people out, there's going to be way fewer people there, way fewer interactions. It's safer for them, it's easier for them, um, and it's the best option. So as opposed to being more active around dawn and dusk, like more rural coyotes, these guys are up in the middle of the night. And probably the coolest thing that we have seen as evidence of this is coyotes using traffic lights. So recently here uh, in Cook County, a female coyote has been spotted and regularly monitored via traffic cams is sitting at a crosswalk waiting for the light to change before crossing the street. What? Like, she, this coyote has realized the changing stimulus of the traffic light, you know, moving position, means that the traffic pattern, means that the traffic pattern is going to change and it's going to be safer and easier for her to cross the road. So we have footage of this female coyote sitting and watching the lights and waiting for them to change before she crosses the street. Guys, that's insane. That is not something that would have, that we'd see in a coyote that lives in a forest ecosystem or in a rural ecosystem. That is a behavior that can only arise in an, e in an urban ecosystem. And the fact that we've been able to capture that and see that is incredible. These are very uh, intelligent animals. They are good at learning. They are good at adapting to these, you know, changing times and changing places and changing locations. And that's awesome. And I, I talked a little bit earlier about uh, why I'm talking about coyotes. And that's because people are very often afraid of them, which is unfortunate because they are so important to our ecosystems and they are so smart and clever and just really cool animals. Sorry if you hear something snuffling up here and sniffing. That's my dog, Jax. Hi, puppy. Do you want to be on the podcast? Oh, hi. Mama's recording, okay? You're a good boy. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> he's a really good dog. What did you just pick up? Oh, he didn't. Sorry. I thought he took something and he didn't. Okay, so <laughs> people are a lot of times afraid of coyotes, which is fair because they're predators. They have, uh, they have large teeth and strong jaws and big sharp claws, and people think that coyotes will eat their pets or attack their children. And here's the thing, folks. You really 
don't have to be afraid of that. Of coyotes that have been involved in confirmed coyote attacks, um, of which, might I add, we know very few. There are very few 100% confirmed coyote attacks in the United States. Um, A lot of them, especially historically, are more of a hearsay sort of situation, uh, but we don't have the exact proof that it was a coyote involved. Um, More often than not, those are animals that have been fed. Uh, by people, by hand. They're what we would call nuisance animals or coyotes that have become far too accustomed to people um, and far too adapted to human behaviors to be safe. Except, here's the thing, as long as you're not feeding coyotes and you're giving them their space, there are very few nuisance animals. Nuisance coyotes aren't, they don't just pop into existence. They're oftentimes made. So if you're out and you're walking in the woods and you see a coyote, you just need to give it its space. And if you're threatened by it, then you can try to make a loud noise and it'll likely go away. Because they know that we're the bigger animal there, you guys. We're the bigger dog most of the time. Now, another thing that people are oftentimes afraid of is coyotes coming after their pets. particularly small dogs. And I just only have a couple of things to say on this. I could say a lot of it, but here's what I'm going to say now. First is, y'all, when you're walking your dog, especially your small dogs, keep them on a leash. It's uh, safer for the dog. It's safer for another dog that's being walked. It's safer for the people there. It's safer for people who are driving their cars. Um, If you keep your dog on a leash, a nice, solid, non-retractable leashes. Uh, Retractable leashes are another rabbit hole. I'm not going to get into now, but I want to. And you should be okay. Now, some people are concerned about uh, leaving their dogs in their backyard and having their dog fall victim to a coyote. And folks, if you're leaving your dog in the backyard long enough, if you're leaving your dog out in your backyard alone for a long enough period of time that it is a legitimate concern that they will be eaten by another animal, Maybe you shouldn't leave your dog outside alone for that long. Maybe set, you know, a five-minute timer and uh, that's it. Then bring your dog in or stand outside with them for three minutes. Yeah, it's winter. It's cold. Whatever. If you're that concerned about a coyote coming and eating your small dog, don't just leave them outside unattended for extended periods of time. Plus, it's late January right now. This is Chicago. It's cold. Your dog probably shouldn't be outside alone for that long, especially a small dog. But ultimately, folks, coyotes aren't something that we need to be afraid of. In fact, I'd say the only coyote thing we should be afraid of is them disappearing. Because if the coyotes disappeared, then, well, we'd have some much bigger problems on our hands. We'd have population control problems and possibly disease-spreading problems and all sorts of unknown ecosystem changes that could just devastate an area because that one predator has been removed. Guys, coyotes are awesome. I love them. Do I get intimidated sometimes when I see one unexpectedly in the woods while I'm walking? Oh, definitely. Because it's like, wow, that's a big, powerful animal. But just give them their space. Do not feed them. Do not approach them. And you'll be just fine, and so will they. Hey, y'all, thank you so much for listening. This has been Professionally Informal. I'm Maddie Murray, and, you know, just thank you so much for bearing with us through this first episode. If you're like, wow, about partway through, the audio quality really changed, 
Um, that's because I started this podcast in one location and had to finish it in another location because, you know, life happens so much. It never stops happening. Um, if you want to hear more, I'll be back next Wednesday uh, with another topic relating to natural history, nature, and life as an informal educator. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, topic suggestions, or even weird stories from your time either as a professional uh, informal educator or weird interactions you've had with guests at a nature center or zoo, because heaven knows there are a lot of those, you can uh, shoot us an email, and that would be at professionallyinformal at gmail.com. Or you can tweet to us, tweet about us at profession at informal pod on Twitter. Um, we'd love to connect with you there. Uh, we don't have this is the first episode. We don't have a listener base. We don't have uh, people to send this out to. I don't know why I'm saying we because it's literally just me. That's it. So any uh, any advice or feedback or sharing would be greatly appreciated. You can find us on Spotify, you can find us on Pinecast, and pretty much any other vendor of podcasts of all kind. I'm Maddie Murray. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, learning isn't just for the classroom.